This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we have one of our regular features from Stephen Rosiniak. This was his first story ever published in Chicken Soup for the Father and Son Soul, which can be bought on Amazon.com. Stephen usually reads his entries for us, but today his son Michael will be performing this piece. He's well into his teenage years, still kisses me goodnight, and I'm sure going to miss it when he stops. In truth, he already stopped once a few years ago when he announced that he was a little too old for this, but changed his mind after we had a father and son talk. I've always known the spoken word can deliver a powerful message, but as I learned that night, sometimes the message needn't be voiced at all. And sometimes, the greatest lessons learned are taught to us, unknowingly, by our children. One of the things we talked about that night was an old friend of mine. We were going camping for the weekend, and when I stopped to pick him up, my friend and his father were working together on a classic car restoration. Grabbing his gear and before leaving, he said, See you on Sunday, Pop. And without hesitation, gave his father a kiss. So many years have gone by since then, and yet the memory of that moment remains a lasting impression of the love that my friend had for his father and demonstrated through the power of a son's kiss. My son and I talked about my father, too. I wish I could kiss Dad once more, but he passed away some years ago. We didn't kiss as grown men until well into my own adulthood. When I began to kiss him again, it was on special occasions, holidays, family gatherings, times where I could do so with neither of us feeling embarrassed or uncomfortable. It was such a wonderful feeling to express my love for him in such a way, and I knew he felt so too. Not since my childhood had kissing served as a routine declaration of affection between us, but once resumed, we had both come to expect it. On the night he died, and again one last time before he was laid to rest, I tenderly kissed him and whispered, I love you. This is what I had told my son, not with the purpose to embarrass him into continuing our nightly ritual, but instead to share with him a small piece of love that I had for my father and how much he'd meant to me. He listened, and when I was through, he kissed me. We haven't missed a night since. There have been times when I wondered if our nightly ritual was about to reach its untimely demise, the consequence of some youthful offense committed by my firstborn. With my parental dissatisfaction duly expressed, the ensuing verbal sparring does sometimes commence. We have been angry with each other, but this is how it is sometimes between parents and their children. Despite any ill feelings that may remain between us, and as the day draws to a close, we can never allow such emotions to interfere with the completion of our nightly kiss. When he is ready for bed, he finds me, and when I see him, any feelings of anger experienced earlier in the day quietly disappear. He stands before me, not quite a man, but still, and for the moment, my little boy. His vulnerability is exposed as he unknowingly relinquishes his assaults of late on his quest to charge, full speed, towards the inevitable destination known as manhood. 
He seeks my reassurance that we are okay and that he is still loved. A comforting hug, the nightly kiss, and the reaffirmation that whatever transgressions may have taken place previously, parental love remains unconditional, eternal. As he heads off the bed, I bask in the glow of fatherly love and the reassurance that he still needs me. Once again, our private world has been made right, if but only for one more night. I hope my son never feels uncomfortable kissing me, but if he ever does, I'll understand. Perhaps one day he'll be blessed with children of his own, and then he too will come to know the wonder and glory of fatherhood and the power of his child's kiss. You've been listening to Michael Rasiniak, and that is Stephen Rasiniak's son. And this was a piece that Stephen wrote for Chicken Soup for the Father and Son Soul. And we spend a lot of time on this show with that most important piece of social capital in America called the family, and the importance of fathers in son and daughter's lives, and the importance of mothers in sons and daughter's lives, too. And getting Michael to read the story was just a great turn because he's internalizing these words, and one day, hopefully, he'll be living them himself and passing this great tradition of a kiss between a father and son to teach what masculinity can look and feel like as opposed to merely what it sounds like. And that is the power of such a thing. If you remember, we did Frank Abagnale's story, and that's the character from Catch Me If You Can. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and take a listen to that because it starts with Frank talking about his father and his father's kiss. And that every night, no matter what happened, his father would come in and kiss not only him, but his big Marine Corps brother who was a star football player. And he loved it. And he knew his dad had come in even when he was asleep because the pillow had been touched or a blanket had been turned. And so dad's out there. Don't be afraid to kiss your kid and hug your kid. And you don't have to always say anything. Just a kiss and a hug, especially after a fight. It can go a long way. Chicken soup for the father and son's soul. Go to Amazon.com and get it. And that's Stephen Rosiniak's story. His son Michael's story. And so many father and son stories around this great country. And now it's time for our Why Minutes. And up next, we have Lindsay Marie. This next Why Minutes is about a thing called sports betting. Take it away, Lindsay. When you think of sports betting, what state do you think of? I'm no psychic, but I'm guessing you are thinking of Nevada. But why is that? It has a lot to do with something called the Bradley Act. The Bradley Act was passed by Congress in the 90s. Politicians said it was to protect us from the spread of gambling, but what it actually did was protect Nevada from competition. It restricted sports betting in every state, except, you guessed it, Nevada. For decades, if you wanted to bet on the games legally, you had to go all the way to Nevada. That was, until New Jersey finally had enough. They challenged the law and hit the jackpot. The law was declared unconstitutional, putting an end to Nevada's decades-old monopoly on sports betting. When government meddles in the marketplace, they often say it's to protect us. But what really ends up happening is they change the rules, they stack the odds. Ultimately, they pick winners and losers. And we, the consumers, are always the losers. The Why Minutes. Because why matters.
And we continue here on Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything in life. And we read a fascinating piece in the Wall Street Journal by Abigail Schreier, entitled, Masculine Dads Raise Confident Daughters. To talk about that and more, she joins us now. Abigail, tell us a little bit about your family, how you grew up, and how that began to shape your life. Sure. I was born in Maryland. I have a younger brother, and we grew up in the house of lawyers. So my father was for most of our lives a lawyer, and then he ended up as a judge on the intermediate appellate court. He was the chief judge. And he was, you know, has always been sort of unapologetically masculine, and by which I, of course, do not mean brutish, but I just mean that there was a certain unapologetic masculinity to him. He, of course, held doors for women. He held doors for me. There was never a sense that there was anything wrong with that. In fact, the opposite. There was a sense that there was something wrong with not doing those sorts of things for women. Indeed. Let's talk about, as you were growing up with this, talk a little bit more about your dad, uh, his masculinity, but also his methodologies for raising you and the things he cared about, the things he expected from you. Because here's this traditional masculine father, but obviously he wants to raise a really strong daughter. Right. So my father considered himself a feminist in his own way, by which he meant that he never allowed me to make excuses for failures in conduct or morality. The fact that my feelings were hurt by something was not an important thing. It was one factor possibly to consider, but more importantly, the question was, was I right that my feelings were hurt? Was I right to be upset? And sort of unbridled emotion was never accepted for me in place of reason. And my father thought that, well, my father's always admired women tremendously. And he made that very clear to me. He admired our mother and he admired very much his mother and, and his mother-in-law. And he really thought that strong women were a wonderful and enchanting thing. Part of that was that he expect, he always had high expectations for me. So I was never supposed to be silly and I was never supposed to get away with, you know, bad behavior by crying or anything like that. My father found that all undignified and really unwomanly. He found it childish. And, and he made that clear. I mean, if, if I wanted to prevail in an argument or I wanted to get sympathy, I had to do it by calming down and being reasonable. And so that's what I've, I had always learned was what it meant to be a woman. Certainly that, you know, that, that was the example my mother sent. But in some sense, more importantly, I got that message from my father. And the reason for that is when a young girl's growing up and when I was growing up, you worry about being able to attract men. And you worry that you might have to grovel or cry to get attention from men. You see that a lot. And my father, having a masculine example, made it clear that because he considered me an amazing young woman and he made that clear that I never needed to grovel for the attention of men and I never needed to reduce my standards either for my own conduct or for what I expected from other men. I'm going to read a line from this Wall Street Journal piece. He admired smarts less than grit and found surface beauty less enchanting than charm, the woman he admired most was our mother, not for her intelligence or accomplishments, though she had plenty of both, but because of a strength that took his breath away, and on which he often relied. Talk about that. My dad always made it clear that he found women to be remarkable. I think that in many ways, the people he admired most in his life, you know, and it certainly enjoyed most in his life were the various women he had known from women he had been friends with, you know, over the years until the day when he met my mother and then her. And what he admired was a sort of feminine strength and grace and smarts. 
he always found women more interesting in a certain sense than men. And he made that clear to me that he expected me to be one of them. And it was not because they were sort of picture-perfect gorgeous, but more that they brought a certain grace and intelligence and emotional depth to ideas and an elegance to behavior. That didn't mean, you know, parading around in a sort of hypersexualized way or anything like that, but just carrying oneself with grace and dignity was something that he really admired and found very attractive. You write also, my father's own unapologetic masculinity made us feel secure. Talk about that. Absolutely. My father, you know, he was probably not physically stronger than the average man. He had asthma and and whatnot, but he made it clear that he would do anything to protect us physically if necessary and in any other way. One time years ago, I was being sort of picked on by someone who was sort of a family friend and he was a man at that point and I was still a girl and he pushed me and he said, you know, my father may case, if he ever does that again, that will be the last time. And I said, but he's, he's stronger than you, dad. And he said, that doesn't matter because I'm willing to do anything to protect my family. And I knew he was right and I knew he would prevail for that reason. That was absolutely an essential part of him was the obligation to protect us. That's so well said. And let's talk about one other thing you wrote. If you want to protect girls, find them good parents or become them. And so much is written about fathers and sons and the lack of fathers causing such problems with men forming gangs and all the things that can happen with boys when they don't have a dad. I don't think nearly enough is written about what happens to girls. That's exactly right, because dads have a uniquely potent message for their daughters in terms of what their conduct should be and what they should expect from the men in their lives. The love of a father for a girl, for his daughter, is going to set expectations of a young woman for what is charming, what is lovable, and for what she deserves. One of the things I mentioned in the article was that, you know, I sort of had a Me Too movement moment, as it were, which was that, um, you know, I was propositioned by a professor who's, who's a support I really thought I needed at that time in my career. And the reason ultimately, you know, I, I turned him down was because I was worried that if I lowered my standards, I would disappoint my father. It was not because of my mother's advice, although she had given me plenty, but because he thought I was the most amazing young woman in the world. And I think that only a masculine dad is credible to a young woman when he tells her she'll be attractive to the right guy. She doesn't have to grovel in front of unworthy guys who will take her for granted just because she would procure some form of male attention. So that is so beautifully said, Abigail, and such an important point. Talk a bit more about how having a strong father for a role model can set up a young woman for lifelong success. And talk a little about the sad flip side of that. Absolutely, it can. It's very important for girls, I think, to see this from their fathers, to not be afraid of it. I mean, right now we're teaching, with all this talk of toxic masculinity, we're teaching girls to be terrified of masculinity, to be terrified, in other words, of half the population. That's not a good thing. You know, women, young women today are not in a psychologically healthy place. In fact, arguably, they've never been in worse shape. The rates of suicide are very high. The rates of, of cutting and depression are, are higher than they've ever been in young women. You know, it's not simply because we're terrifying them of masculinity, but that's certainly one part. It's the opposite of, <laughs> of helping them to feel safer. I mean, it's no surprise to girls that they're less physically strong than men. They know this. We all know this. 
if you tell them that men's strength is terrifying, that it is brutal, and that it will always be used against them, that's a really frightening world to live in. Really, we should be encouraging the proper harnessing of masculinity into something virtuous and good. It's a problem that women, you know, that, that people aren't getting married in the same numbers. We know it's a problem for our society. It's a problem for our birth rate. It's a problem for establishing communities in America. But one of the things is that women don't know, young women don't know today what's to be gained in a marriage. They don't know what's to be gained by being sort of the feminine counterpart to a husband. And that's something that really has to be taught in order to be understood and learned. And instead, women are going, I mean, young women today, I think the average age at which which um, kids now see pornography for the first time is 11. And it's terrifying. A huge number of young girls are seeing this. And it is really their first visualization of sex. And it is very violent. It is what looks like a man really violently abusing a woman. This is a message that a lot of young girls are getting. Everywhere they look from the women's marches, we, they are told that men's sort of primary role in their lives will be to abuse them. That's the opposite of encouraging marriage. And by the way, young boys are told that the sort of great thing that men are known for is abusing women. So both things are really discouraging of marriage, of union, and partially as a result, you're really not seeing as much marriage, you know, unsurprisingly. It's such an awful message for boys and for girls. Abigail, any last words to your father and all the other fathers listening? I would just say thank you to my dad. I mean, he knows, look, I'm in a wonderful marriage, and my father really, really loves my husband, and, and I know that wouldn't, none of that would have been possible. I wouldn't have been the woman who my husband was attracted to. I wouldn't have been strong enough for him, and I wouldn't have waited to find him had it not been for the example of my father. I, I'm very grateful to my dad, and I just hope so many other dads out there expect a lot from their daughters and expect that they demand a lot for themselves in the way that they're treated. And we've been listening to Abigail Schreier, her terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal entitled Masculine Dads Raise Confident Daughters. And it's so true. I'm hoping I'm doing the same with my little girl, Reagan. This is Lee Habib, Abigail Schreier's story, her father's story, here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories, and this next story comes to us from a regular contributor, John Elfner, who's taught U.S. history for over 20 years at Homewood Flossmoor High School in the south suburbs of Chicago. Here's John with a great history story. I teach U.S. history to high school students, and on the first day of class, just after they've arrived, I tell them the story of something called the Freedom Train. It's the very first thing my students hear me talk about, and it's such a great story, it comes with its own soundtrack. Speaking of trains, I think it'd be a good idea for the Rhythm Airs and Mr. Trotter to join me in a song about the most important choo-choo, the Freedom Train. This song by Bing Crosby was written to celebrate a very specific train that over 3.5 million Americans boarded between 1947 and 1949. It was called the Freedom Train. 
The Freedom Train was a museum on rails. It was an actual train. Each car contained original documents that represented American freedom, and the train traveled from city to city for over two years. It would pull into a station and settle on a sidetrack. The local townspeople would board the train to witness freedom documents. Original copies of the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Emancipation Proclamation, along with many others, were featured. Dr. Stuart J. Little has written extensively about the Freedom Train, and I'm going to let him pick up the story. The Freedom Train was a social, cultural, political event immediately on the heels of the end of the Second World War. And it began as an idea for some staff people who worked for the Department of Justice. And they just so happened to be across the street from the National Archives. And they walked across the street one day, I think on their lunch hour, they got together with the Attorney General's office, with the National Archives people and said, let's see what we can do to put something together. So by the early 1947, they created this organization called the American Heritage Foundation. And they designed a very aggressive schedule to bring this train to all parts of the country. They started in September of 1947, went around the country for 413 days, went to 322 cities. And by their count, they had over 3 million people that visited the train every time it stopped. And the, that averaged out to, I think, about 9,000 people a day. The Freedom Train had a mission to bolster American identity. Now remember, we were barely out of World War II, and the nation had been so unified with a purpose that was literally life and death during that war. And now the war was over. We were entering our next great conflict, the Cold War, and the organizers of the Freedom Train recognized the need to encourage a very specific idea of what it means to be an American outside of wartime. And their organizing principle was freedom. Here again is Dr. Little. We've defeated the Nazis and the Japanese. There's a great consensus in America for what we mean, and we can pull these documents together and reflect that, that we're on the, the right path. We've defeated everybody. We're literally at the rise of American power after World War II. And so there's this great sense of accomplishment and moving forward. Townspeople excitedly rushed in droves to see the Freedom Train, but you don't have to take my word for it. I met two women who boarded the Freedom Train in 1947. I would have been 12 or 13. That's Clarice Fleet, and she boarded the train in Minot, North Dakota. I was in grade school at that time. And that's Carol Jones. She got on the train in Green Bay, Wisconsin in 1948. And it was announced all over the media. From coast to coast, the Freedom Train thrilled millions of Americans with its message of liberty. Among the documents of greatest interest, the first ten amendments to the Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, the Freedom Train, bearing these guarantees of liberty, symbolize the forwards of America. The arrival of the Freedom Train, especially in small towns like Minot, North Dakota and Green Bay, Wisconsin, thrilled the people from these towns. You can hear it in Carol Jones's voice as she talks about learning the Freedom Train was coming. We were very excited to know that the Freedom Train was coming to Green Bay. Our school was going to march in, in line and get dressed up, and we were going to go see the Freedom Train. We were thoroughly excited that this train was coming to Green Bay. It was fascinating listening to these two women tell the story of their visits to the Freedom Train. To this day, Carol and Clarice have never met or spoken to each other. 
Both women's recollections of their visit was nearly identical. Welcome to the Freedom Train. We got our friends together and we all marched over. The whole town turned out just like they did for the state fair. We gathered at school, St. Patrick's grade school. No pushing. So the nuns all had their habits on and everything and they escorted us in line. Step this way. The line that went forever. (laughs) And the train itself was in red, white, and blue. It was a beautiful day. I mean, it was just lovely. And we had we walked through, and it was, keep going, keep going. Faster, <laughs> we couldn't daddle. And on each side, and then you walk down, down the middle of the aisle of the train. They divided us up because the train was so long. Stay with your group. And then on each side, they had the documents that they were the real documents. The Constitution is on your left. It was so exciting to see the Declaration of Independence. They showed documents under Under glass. glass. Don't touch the glass. You couldn't touch them, but you could look at them. And it went on all day. Open from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. This beautiful train. Very, very beautiful. As passengers boarded the train, they were handed something called the Freedom Pledge. It was created by the American Heritage Organization, and by reading it, you can tell what they meant by freedom. I will vote at all elections. I will serve on a jury when asked. I will respect and obey the laws. I will pay my taxes understandingly, if not cheerfully. I will work for peace. Getting on the train and accepting the card with the Freedom Pledge was a version of entering into a contract with the designers of the Freedom Train, committing to their notion of what it means to be an American. Every person who boarded the train was even asked to sign a scroll, which was delivered to the National Archives when the train concluded its journey in 1949. The contract sent this message, our country provided freedom, and the passenger's obligation in the contract was to fulfill this pledge. And this pledge succeeded in setting a tone for the interior of the train. Newspapers reported it this way. Inside, one has the feeling he is in church. The only light is the soft, fluorescent glow reflected from the lighted documents. Parents shush their children and little schoolboys take off their caps without being told. People speak in low, guarded tones used by tourists in ancient cathedrals. The Freedom Train had a mission to define, through documents, what it means to be an American and to get millions of people to sign on to that definition. Touring these documents from city to city, people like Clarice and Carol understood what the American Heritage Foundation had hoped that they would. Our nation is successful because of a past focused on freedom, designed by our noble ancestors, who through their work created a strong and united nation. And that unity and strength of principle allowed us to defeat tyranny in World War II. The country was unified, and the Freedom Train emphasized that unity. Everybody was so appreciative to be able to see those things because to have it come to our our little hometown meant so much to everybody at that time. I don't know anybody in town that didn't go down there. All we knew is that something exciting was coming to town and that we were going to see the Freedom Train, the real Freedom Train, with real things that were all about Washington and Lincoln. We would have to see for real just the fact that you were looking at the actual documents that formulated our country. Everybody was, God bless America, and there was no controversy, and we were coming out of the war, and there was a lot of patriotism going on. We had yet to face what was happening as far as integration goes. That may have been true in Green Bay, Wisconsin, but as the train scheduled stops in the South, city officials in Birmingham, Alabama, 
announced that in their city, the Freedom Train would be segregated. And if I didn't have my students' attention up until this point, I have their attention now. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story, the Freedom Train. And by the way, what an idea to take a Freedom Pledge. I don't know if you've ever been to a a swearing-in ceremony for immigrants in this country who come here, but it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever heard. And I sometimes wonder if we all shouldn't have to do that as a pathway to voting and everything else. And by the way, look that pledge up. Just go up on uh, Google and, and type in Citizen Pledge. Maybe I'll read it at the end of the rest of this story. When we come back to Freedom Train, we're with John Elfner, a history teacher at Homewood Flossmore High School in the south suburbs of Chicago. More on this story here on Our American Stories. return to our American stories and the story of the Freedom Train, let's return to John Elfner for the rest of this story. The Freedom Train was a glorious success, hosting 9,000 visitors a day, traveling over 30,000 miles in two years, and having over 3 million witnesses to our founding documents. But when the train headed for Birmingham in 1947, the town announced it would segregate African-American and white visitors to the train. How can something called the Freedom Train end up with such obvious contradictions to the basic notions of freedom? It's important to remember that the year the Freedom Train began in 1947, it was still seven years before the landmark Supreme Court case, Brown v. Board of Education, which declared segregation by race inherently unequal. But the Freedom Train organizers were ready for this. Here again is historian Stuart J. Little. The American Heritage Foundation, they had a stated written policy that they would not allow segregated viewing of these documents when the train went through the South. A portion of the Freedom Pledge even acknowledged this. In thought, expression, and action, I will avoid any group prejudice based on class, race, or religion. Despite the efforts of the Freedom Train organizers, many Southern cities still tried to schedule segregated viewings of the train. At this point in the story, we meet a familiar opponent of civil rights who became much more prominent after the 1963 Birmingham movement. His name is Bull Connor, and he held the position of the Commissioner of Public Safety and was the head of the police in Birmingham, Alabama. Remember the images of the German shepherds attacking African-American teens? Or the Birmingham Fire Department using fire hoses to break up protesters? They were acting on the orders of Bull Connor. But the Freedom Train was visiting Birmingham 16 years before that famous march. Connor's views on segregation in the Freedom Train won't surprise you. He sent a message to the organizers of the Freedom Train saying this. Our segregation law is for the equal protection of the white and black races of the city and for the prevention of disorder in the city. We will fairly give equal opportunity to whites and blacks to enter the Freedom Train by alternatively allowing whites and blacks in each car of the train. Can you hear how Connor is using the language of the separate but equal ruling of the Supreme Court? 
we will fairly give equal opportunity to whites and blacks. What he meant was, African Americans can board the train at separate times than whites would be boarding the train. The attempts to segregate the Freedom Train at stops like Birmingham, Alabama, didn't go unnoticed by civil rights advocates. Langston Hughes, perhaps the most celebrated poet of the Harlem Renaissance, wrote a poem called The Freedom Train, and it was recorded by arguably the most famous and most political African-American figure in the 1940s, Paul Robeson. Checking on the Freedom Train. I read in the papers about the Freedom Train. I heard on the radio about the Freedom Train. Atlanta, way across Georgia. Lord, Lord, Lord. Lord, way down in Dixie, the only trains I see got Jim Crow coaches set aside for me. I hope there's no Jim Crow. Researching this story, I found a ripped piece of paper in the Library of Congress's papers belonging to Rosa Parks. It was a scrap of typing paper that had faded to a parchment yellow. It was torn, and only fragments of sentences were visible. The Library of Congress had cataloged it as Rosa Parks writing about the Freedom Train, but it wasn't that. It was Langston Hughes's poem. Mrs. Parks had heard it and typed it out for herself. But there's more. Mrs. Parks was aware that other cities like Birmingham had tried to segregate the lines for the Freedom Train. She decided that she would, in the words of Langston Hughes, check up on the Freedom Train when it arrived in Montgomery. Historian Dr. Jean Theo Harris is the author of a recent award-winning biography of Mrs. Parks called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. She picks up the story. The Freedom Train is supposed to be integrated and they're galled that the committee in Montgomery, it's an all-white committee, and she writes up a report from the Montgomery NAACP basically calling attention to this, and it's published in the Memphis World, which is a black newspaper. Parks, who was at that time already working for the NAACP, saw the Freedom Train as an opportunity to advocate for civil rights. In December of 1947, uh, she ultimately takes a group of black young people to see the Freedom Train. And it's, it's dangerous. It's her first experience with kind of hate calls. The popular image of Rosa Parks is that of a seamstress who didn't want to give up her seat on the bus because she was simply tired. But the story of Rosa Parks is much more complex and layered and she may have been directly inspired by the Langston Hughes poem. Listen to these lines. The Birmingham stations marked colored and white. White folks left the colored right. They even got a segregated lane. Is that the way to get aboard the Freedom Train? I'm gonna check. I'm gonna check up on this Freedom Train. Rosa Parks was checking up on the Freedom Train, just as Langston Hughes said you should. The train she boarded was not technically segregated, but it wasn't clear when she arrived that the community in Montgomery would allow her to integrate the train, or even the line for the train. When Rosa Parks checked up on the Freedom Train, it was still eight years before she would become a national figure when she refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus. So how did they do? Was the movement surrounding the Freedom Train a success? I'll let you decide. Here's what happened. When word reached organizers of the Freedom Train that southern cities were considering segregating the train, they sent advance men to all the cities to check up on any efforts to segregate the lines to the Freedom Train. Any cities that had such plans were told the Freedom Train would cancel its visits. Only Birmingham and Memphis, Tennessee continued to insist on segregated lines, and in those cities, the Freedom Train stops were canceled. The decision to stand up to the city organizers in Birmingham and Memphis was cheered nationally. The New York Times made the cancellation of the Birmingham stop a front-page story on Christmas Day of 1947. 
After the cancellations in Birmingham and Memphis, Walter White, the leader of the NAACP, publicly said this, for one of the very first times in history, the rest of the country had called the bluff of the reactionary South. I began this story by saying that on the first day of my history class, I tell my students the story of the Freedom Train. Why this story? I'm gonna let Dr. Kevin Boyle, Northwestern University history professor and author of my favorite history book, Arc of Justice, help answer that question. Most Americans know the story of the Civil Rights Movement or maybe a better way of putting it, is they know a story of the Civil Rights Movement. Ask them when the Civil Rights Movement began and they'll tell you it started on a Thursday night, a little after 5 p.m. on December 1st, 1955, when a woman, 42-year-old woman, they think was elderly, refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. From that single act of defiance by Rosa Parks, they'll say, emerged a movement that swept across the South of the 1950s and 1960s, ran through the hallways of Little Rock Central High School in 1957. It sat down at the lunch counters in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960, rode the buses out of Anniston, Alabama in 1961. It came onto the campus of the University of Mississippi in 1962. It filled the streets of Birmingham with children in the spring of 1963. It dared to go into the Mississippi Delta in the summer of 64. It marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge outside of Selma, Alabama in 1965, and it died on a motel balcony in Memphis, Tennessee in April of 1968. That's the story of civil rights as most Americans understand it. So what happens when you look at the African-American struggle that doesn't fit into that story, that doesn't fit between 1955 and 1965, when it doesn't fit into that triumphant trajectory, what happens to civil rights then? What happens is a reconsideration of the story of the civil rights movement, a story we thought we knew. And when you widen the civil rights movement beyond the years of the traditional story, my students realize that Rosa Parks and scores of others like her were fighting for civil rights long before the Montgomery bus boycott. And when they realize that a story they thought they knew is more complex and requires more exploration, it forces them to dig more deeply into all eras of history. It also gives them a chance to consider what artifacts from each era could be used to represent what it means to be an American. There was a second freedom train that traveled through our country to celebrate America's bicentennial in 1976. It featured many of the same documents from the original Freedom Train, but it also included dozens of documents that didn't exist at the time of the first Freedom Train, like a moon rock gathered by astronauts during the Apollo mission, John F. Kennedy's rocking chair from the White House, Hank Aaron's baseball cap, and dozens of other more recent artifacts. Seeing the difference between the two trains makes me wonder what would a Freedom Train have looked like in 1830, 1865, 1920, or today? In the year 2026, our country will be celebrating the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I can't think of a better way to celebrate our Sester Centennial than for us to get on board a third Freedom Train. And what stories, speeches, people, portraits, and songs would you want to see on that Freedom Train to represent what it means to be an American? I hope somebody plans a Freedom Train, and if they do, let's get on board together. I guarantee you the lines will be long, but there'll be plenty of room for all of us on the 21st Century Freedom Train. All aboard! The 
And you've been listening to John Elfner and the story of the Freedom Train and that second installment, particularly compelling, telling the story of segregation in America and giving the larger picture. We did a terrific piece on Rosa Parks and her life story, and it's clear that that was not the beginning of her trial, that for a long time before, Rosa Parks had been on the move trying to change things in the South, and heck, there was a heck of a lot of segregation in the North, too. I'm a Jersey boy uh, by, by birth, and my goodness, almost all the neighborhoods were filled with white folks, and when black folks moved in, white folks left. There wasn't a law forcing them to, but they did it anyway. And we cover all the stories here on Our American Stories, the good ones, the bad ones, and everything in between. The Freedom Train, here's hoping we get one for 2026. I'd love to see what's on it. That story here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, working hard to help perpetuate policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And now it's time for our own Alex Cortez, who brings us today's story. Jack Marucci is the director of LSU's athletic training, but he's also a dad. My son was, uh, he's about seven, eight years old, Gino, and we used to watch a lot of baseball. I, I'd even play old videos with Pirates, Roberto Clemente, so that became his guy. And he liked Bonds as bad. He saw the black and two-tone wood bat. He goes, Dad, I like that. Man, I want to play with a wood bat. That's different, because wood bats weren't even mentioned back then. You know, now you got wood bat tournaments, and everyone likes the wood bat. So uh, I end up calling all these bat companies. They all had stock bats, none were small enough or short enough. Everybody maybe was an inch off. I needed a 27. And they only stopped at 29 or I stopped at 28. So I started looking around and there were some old bats stored here at LSU. I'm looking at them. And then we had a quarterback, Matt Mock. I started talking to Matt. Matt played for the Cubs for three years. I said, Matt, I'm, I'm thinking about making a bat for my son. I'm going to make one. I'm going to bring it in. Tell me what we need to do to, to make this thing tapered right. So I made the first one and uh, top heavy. You know, I use electrical tape to, <laughs> to do whatever. And I, I carved in, I think that one was the Geno Crusher. So the next one I start making, I got a lot better. That was the Geno Slugger. So he starts getting in Little League. He's using a wood bat. Okay, this is different, but he's, he's one of the best hitters. So everybody on the team goes, well, if he's hitting good with that bat. I want one with my kid's name on it. So we'll form a little company, Marucci Bat Company. So I bought a shed. I bought it from Canada. It's a cedar shed. I told the guy what I wanted because I thought cedar's going to last longer in this weather, the mildew, the, you know, it's not going to rot. I said, I want doors in the front and the back. He goes, why do you want that? I said, have you ever lived in Louisiana? I said, it's like living on the equator. I said, I need airflow. So I put a fan in there and that was my bat shop. And it, you know, that was 2002. Jack went to the trouble of buying a shed when he was just making a few bats for his kid and some little league friends. 
because I had to get a lathe, I had to put it somewhere, and I had a carport. So I ended up, after football, I always joke around, I said saving was a little stressful, so it was a nice stress relief to get it away. That's championship coach Nick Saban. So I'd spend nights and the neighbor would come over and go, what are you doing? There's sawdust everywhere. I go, I'm making bats. He goes, you're making bats? He goes, give me a couple. You know, everyone, as soon as they saw it, they go, oh, 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 I want one. But he didn't charge them for it. I wasn't at first. So I started 25 bucks. I mean, the wood cost probably 15. And because uh, money was never a thing. I, I felt bad. I felt bad that I was going to charge somebody for it. Then I said, well, I better start charging because, you know. Because this is getting a little bit ridiculous? <laughs> well, one day, Jack was going to hang with a friend of his, Eduardo Perez, who just happened to be a major league player. And we're catching up, and I told him what I was doing. He goes, bring me one up. I said, all right. And he gave me a model, which was a common model. Everything was based off a of Louisville Slugger model, so C243. I said, all right. I think I can find one in the pile because LSU had some wood bats laying around. I found one that I would hang it on the hanger. I had two hangers, you know, I'd straighten out the, the wire and it would hang right over the lathe. So I'm looking at it and I could, you know, feel it. I would do it by eye and feel. I would cut the bat. I think I made them two. And I mean, what's he going to do with it? Maybe he's just going to put it up in his house. So. He meets me in front of the hotel and he, and he pulls out of the box and his eyes light up. And he goes, man, he goes, I'm going to use this tonight. I said, what? I said, this thing's going to explode, Eddie. I said, I've seen seven and eight-year-olds swing this. I said, you're going to swing this, this thing? He goes, I'm going to sneak it in because I wasn't licensed. You know, you, there's all these regulations which you find out. And uh, he goes, I tell you what, I want you to come down for batting practice. I said, okay. He gets me down there and... He goes, this bat is unbelievable. Then he introduces me to, to Barry Larkin. He's playing for the Reds. He uh, says, I tell you what, we're playing in Houston. I want you to make me one. <laughs> I said, all right. Then he introduced me to Albert Pujols. One of the best players on the planet. He was very leery. And Eddie talked to him in Spanish. And that was the first bat was ever given to me to, to replicate. So. Me and my son go to Houston, and Eddie says, get there early for batting practice. He wants you to bring the bat. So I'm walking in the stadium with a bat. I said, I, I gave it to my son. I go, here, Jenna, you take it. He was only, I don't know, nine at the time. And I said, they won't yell at you. I said, I'm not going to bring a bat in the, in the stadium. You technically need Major League Baseball's permission to make bats for its players. So for Jack and his son to come into the stadium like every other fan coming for the game and to deliver their bat to one of the guys that was actually going to play was pretty darn rogue. We walk all the way down, they're taking batting practice. And there's people around in the stands. I don't know what to do. It's the first time I've done this. And um, Larkin kind of sees us. He gives us thumbs up, and everyone behind us is going, oh, that's funny, he recognized, you know. We're in the stands with everybody else, right behind the dugout. They're all trying to get autographs, and there's people everywhere. So the bat boy comes over. We hand the bat over to him. Everyone's going, wow, how's he getting him to sign that bat? 
They're all going, yeah, how's he getting assigned? We're trying to get all of our, they're kind of getting mad. So the bad boy takes it right over to Larkin. Larkin starts putting on the, they call it a motor stick, the tackiness and like pine tar it up. And everyone starts going, wait a minute, he's going to hit with that bat. <laughs> you just bought it to him. And he starts taking BP. So we're watching the game. His second at bat, he was the first guy to get a hit with up the middle. Gian goes, hey, that's big time. And um, that was the first hit. And to me, I said, that was it. I mean, I'm, I, this thing was in my backyard a couple days ago, and this guy's using a Major League Baseball. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this is ridiculous. And when we come back, more of the story of Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's athletic training and the founder of Marucci Sports. Here on Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers series continues after these messages. back with our American stories and we return to the story of Jack Marucci, a father whose son asked him to make wooden bats that he could use in his little league and unintentionally these bats found their way into a major league game. Eduardo Perez, I can't say enough good things about him. He helped the company more than anybody. He was fantastic because he talked to all these players and he's showing them and I'm sending him more bats, and he's sneaking in the game, and he's leaving me voicemails. Man, I hit Alinea against Nomo, and I mean, it was just the excitement of, it was like contraband. You know, we're sending contraband up there. And um, he goes, you're going to get a call from Manny Ramirez. I said, okay. He goes, you know how Manny is. One of only 25 players ever to hit 500 home runs. So I get a call from Manny Ramirez. He goes, I need some bats for the playoff run. You're going to be in the playoffs. You can't use these bats. So I said, well, Manny, we're, we're about to take off. We're about to play Georgia. And so we're getting on a flight, and I'm cutting them off. And I said, let me get back, and I'll cut them. So I spent three nights making bats because one of them I didn't quite like, so I redid it. I made three bats for them. I said, maybe, maybe I'll use them for batting practice or whatever. I don't know. And... Uh, so I put a model number on it. It's called a CB24. So this is 2004 now. And when I got pretty good by then. The finish, I, I was hand doing everything, putting a nice, I mean, it looked shiny. It looked like furniture. That's what Eduardo Presnell all said. It looks like furniture. Fast forward a couple years ago, I saw Orlando Cabrera on that same team. And why he's significant, I'm watching the game and Orlando Cabrera is using these bats in this playoff game. So I asked him. I never talked to Orlando about it. He used Manny's bats, I said. I said, weren't you afraid you're going to get in trouble? He goes, no. He goes, let me tell you something. I hit like 370 in that series. And those bats, that ball was coming off. So this was two years ago I'm talking to him about that 2004 playoff. And he goes, you know, I remember those bats like it was yesterday. And he goes, I always wanted to know, I didn't know what company it was, I wanted to order more, but never heard of it. 
And uh, he goes, that model number, that CB. I said, well, let me tell you something. Somebody gave me a tip about five, six months after that series. They were on eBay. I found two of them. I have them in my office. I bought them back. I didn't tell them who I was. I have those two bats that you hit with in the playoffs. Cabrera hits it deep in front of left. Orlando so I said, you know what the CV stood for? He goes, no. I said, curse buster. I put CV to break the curse. The curse buster of the Yankees. The Red Sox hadn't won a World Series since 1918, 86 years ago. Allegedly cursed by their selling of Babe Ruth to the Yankees. All the way back in 1919. The Red Sox were down three games and they came back and they won the World Series. And I have those bats in my office. I told that story to the Hall of Fame. They wanted them, you know. It's just, it's one of those things, you just never know. And um, so Marucci Bats kind of started taking off. And the next big player would be Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran and we end up having the whole Met team. And all those people in the division saw those bats, those guys were hitting well. And the Phillies took off with Ryan Howard, won the World Series, our whole team was covered with our bats. The word of mouth was unstoppable and especially about the terrifically crazy stories that major leaguers like Carlos Beltran had and shared. At the time, you know, he ordered a half dozen. I always wanted him to order small amounts because I had to cut them at the time. And and, and then, then we got more automated, obviously, but I, I was getting tendonitis. I, I swear to God, I, I got bad. This is the first time I had epicondylitis. I told him, that I would tell him that, and I would tell the clubhouse guy, if it's a bad guy, I don't care if he's the best player, but we don't want to do bats for him. We, we were trying to turn down business because the quality of wood, we only have so much. So he orders the bats, we ship them out, and I get a phone call from him. Jack, you... You only sent me five bats, I ordered six. I said, I know. He goes, what do you mean you know? I said, do you understand that I was trying to get you the six bat, I cut like 10 to 12 bats. They weren't the quality I wanted, in silence. He goes, that is unbelievable. So he goes, You're not, you don't make like batting practice bats? No, what do you mean batting practice bats? So being naive and thinking, I'm just gonna give you the best quality. Companies that he was using says, you know, I only can get, I'm not gonna mention companies, but he going to use four to five bats out of the dozen. He felt the other ones were subpar. That's how they did it. Even for the most elite players in the most elite baseball league on the planet, the greatest of the great, it would be like giving Michael Jordan a pair of $30 sandals to play basketball in. If this is how they service the top, how do they service the rest of us. Our bats didn't matter if you were the lowest guy to Albert Pujols. It's the same wood. It was always the same. Nothing. There was no variance. And he loved it. So I always told people, you know, we were always chasing the quality. and You're not going to chase the dollar. You're not going to chase that money. Chase the quality. The stuff will come. A lot of people flippantly say that they're focused on quality. It's one of those inescapable buzzwords like customer-focused, but that is rarely true. At Marucci, they refuse to put their seal on a bat unless it is absolutely perfect. 
we're dependent on an organic piece of material that it's not like a metal bat where you can fabricate it. You're not fabricating a piece of wood. You're dependent on mother nature. So you can get in a piece of wood and it may have ingrown bark, it could have defoliation on it. It may not dry the right way. It could bend up bowing. So now you got a warp. So there's so many factors. And that's why the company decided to buy a wood mill on an Amish farm in Pennsylvania so that they could have a stable supply source and one that they can control, at least try to. And still... If you look at the wood that comes in, probably only 13 to 14% is used for major league bats because of how selective we are. Their 86% rejection rate is absolutely nuts and it's actually even worse or jack would say even better given the commitment behind it once the approved wood gets into their process they're able to make about 1200 bats a day and a big chunk of them won't make it through their quality control checks about 300 of them a fourth of their employees daily work gone and wiped away. This translates into an actual rejection rate of 89.5%. And for some context on this, for how it is for most businesses, Johnsonville Sausage founder Ralph Steyer told us that he was concerned about their rejection rate of 5%. And he ended up getting it down to 0.5%. One bat maybe touched 22 to 24 sets of hands before it's out on the major league field. So it's, it's, we're just, we're obsessive on quality. Then we start developing a, an idea. Players wanted to become part of what we're doing. Other companies are paying players to use their stuff. We've never paid a player to use a bat. Never thought, of, why would I do that? They, they want them. Why would I? Here's a novel idea. They want to buy into us. So we have 18, probably 18 major league baseball players are investing in the company. So there's a lot more people that have probably benefited than I am, even financially, which is, which is good. Jack could do that, given that he doesn't care about the money. His concern is a greater one. The clubhouse guys loved us because we weren't in there all the time, and we weren't trying to sell to everybody. You know, I've told players if they act up early on that we don't want to do bats for you. If, if you're embarrassed... You wouldn't believe some of the conversations. We had a player throw a bat in the minor leagues, and I told him, if we, if we do this again, we're done. We're not making your bats anymore. You know, and it, some of these guys were never told stuff like that, but I, I believe that was the right thing to do. When you're not desperate like that, it, it makes you different. But then when you become a little bit driven by it, it, it changes things. So we became the number one bat company probably about two and a half years ago. We passed the Louisville Slurp. And uh, by a pretty large margin now. But, um, you know, you're in sport, and it is a game of inches. And if those companies made that bat one inch longer, I wouldn't have probably made bats because they would have made a bat for my son, and that would have been it. <laughs> one inch. One inch. And what a story, folks. Chase the quality, the rest will come. And my goodness, what an idea letting the major league baseball players themselves own a piece of the company rather than chasing them for a darned endorsement when we come back more of the life story of jack marucci director of lsu's athletic training founder of marucci sports here on our american stories our american dreamers segment 
and series continues. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the story of Jack Marucci, who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat maker in Major League Baseball in the matter of only a decade. As a reminder, Jack Marucci is a world-class athletic trainer. He wasn't a world-class woodmaker or really a woodmaker at all. He took an 8th grade woodshop class, and that was about it. He had to buy second-hand equipment, a lathe, for $150 just to hope to fulfill his son's simple dream of playing with a wood bat. So how is it even possible that this non-woodmaker, non-baseball expert made a bat that was so good that it became the highest-selling in Major League Baseball? Was it pure luck? Did he just accidentally make something that was the best? From the outside looking in, it may seem like it. How did how'd you learn wood? How did we do it? I said, well, you go to the University of Google and you can learn a lot. Then you can go to, then you get a master's at the University of YouTube. And you know, there's so many resources if you use them and, and you have connections to call people. You talk to the physicist up in Michigan who's done a lot of testing and you learn, you pick their brain, you, you learn about wood with the people who make the drumsticks with all the great rock bands and you know there is, a, there, is, there is something to the type of wood and the way you dry it and there is formulas but you can learn that. You can if you, if you want to, the resources are there if, if you have the passion for it you can. If you have the willingness to, Jack was around 37 years old then, and a lot of folks at that age aren't willing to learn new things. Heck, I'm 29, and this city boy turned country boy finds it absolutely daunting to learn new things like taking care of a riding lawnmower. I, I think it's part of our nature. That's why our parents and grandparents came over to this country. They were willing to take chances. I think it's built inside of us. I think we're a little bit more adventurous, maybe because of that. My mom was 11 when she came from Spain, and my grandfather's from Italy. So we're half Spanish, half Italian, but, and that was the makeup of most of the people we grew up with. Everybody was pretty ethnic. You know, we went to the Italian church and St. Teresa's. We thought that's how it was everywhere. <laughs> Notice how Jack said the Italian church, not the Catholic church. In immigrant hotbeds like Jack's Uniontown, Pennsylvania, or my ancestor's Chicago neighborhood of Bridgeport, each ethnicity had its own Catholic church. No, it wasn't the Catholic, it was the Italian church. We went to, there was the Polish church, and you had the uh, Russian Orthodox church. That's how it was. So, I mean, you think, uh, you know, that's all you know as a kid. But um, her dad came over to be a coal miner. And we went back to see her where she grew up. It was like San Diego. I'm going, why would your dad leave this place? They lived right by the ocean. 
But I guess times were so bad, they had a civil war, the economy was bad, and the war was breaking out. This was like in the early 40s. So, But her dad comes over here right before the war, War II, and he's trying to save money, bring the family up, but he can't get back and forth. So my mom didn't see him until 11 years, until he could save up the money. So she was 11 the first time she saw her dad. <laughs> her sister and her brother came over, didn't know English. They put them in second grade to learn the English and they had to work their way up. Then my dad's side, my grandfather came over when he was 15. Then he got deported because you had to be 16. Or you can see it on the Ellis Island report. He got to Ellis Island and somehow he got through all that. And they said, well, you're only 15. And they deported him back. So he had to go all the way back. Then he came back when he was 16. And these aren't a couple hour flights that we're talking about here. We're talking about boat rides across the ocean and long ones. It's gonna be probably a month. So he started a restaurant. So we came up kind of in the restaurant business. So my dad ended up being the butcher. My dad did the bartending. We did the managing. Him and his two sisters took over after my grandfather passed. And, was built from nothing, it was just a little deli. And they built it into a place where banquets could seat up to six, 700 people. I mean, it's, it just kept growing. And that's when I first probably came across the first professional athletes, because we used to check coats, me and my brother. We're like 10 years old and you're checking coats, man. And they're giving you these big coats and we'd stay up late and we're so tired. I mean, it's like almost one o'clock and we never stay up this late. Imagine making your 10-year-old today stay up until 1 a.m. to work for you. You wouldn't be able to. The labor laws would call it child abuse. That was child abuse. We were so tired. We'd wrestle in there. We'd have coats all over the place. You know, we'd do whatever. And uh, we'd start being silly and, we'd, you know, we'd give them the coat and we'd, like, we're coughing, go, how about a buck? You know, we'd do something like that. How about a buck? You know, and <laughs> so... So, I mean, we would just do these, all these goofy things, but you could make, if it's a hundred coats, you're making a hundred bucks. You know, you split it, that's 50 bucks each. Not bad for a 10 year old. Joe Paterno would come in or, you know, for a banquet he was speaking. So we were a sports oriented family. Again, from the area where we grew up, a lot of people know the history of even just quarterbacks from there. Within a 50 mile radius of the city of Pittsburgh, they've had 36 NFL quarterbacks, including Dan Marino, Joe Montana, Joe Namath, Jim Kelly, and Johnny Unitas, leading it to be called the cradle of quarterbacks. And by the way, in basketball, Pistol Pete Maravich is from there too. The name Maravich is a very ethnic Croatian. But you know, I think then, and, and if you look at it from that culture, that's why you had a lot of Italian boxers, that's why you had a lot of Irish. You know, they were immigrants that came over here just trying to do anything to get out of poverty. So they learned to fight, they learned to start a restaurant. So they were very innovative, and I think that we were very fortunate to grow up in that type of culture. But when you're, when you're growing up, you, don't, you have no idea. You're just living and breathing it not knowing that life's not like that for a lot of folks and that this immigrant mentality is a gift. So, so we're going to Bamante's in New York. It's the oldest 
I think it's, it's in the top 10 oldest restaurants in the New York metropolitan area. It's in Brooklyn. This restaurant was the one where they did the TV show, The Sopranos. They filmed a lot in there. So I get in there, it's not a big place. And I'm sitting there and all these people start coming in. Bobby Valentine comes in. Here comes Tommy Lasorda comes walking in. And then Joe Piscopo comes walking in. Then Leonardo DiCaprio comes along. I'm sitting next to the guy. We're, we're laughing. We're going to wake up tomorrow and go, this, this really happened. These people just start marching. All these Italians. Jack yeah, then here's, here I am. Yeah, here I am from Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And my goodness, if you didn't like Jack Marucci's story in those first two segments, my goodness, the flavor just keeps getting added into the mix. Of course, he's down in Cajun country now, but he was a, a Pittsburgh boy, which means... Football, football, football. But it wasn't just that, folks. That early work experience as a young man, we hear this again and again in our successful entrepreneur stories. Work young. Child labor laws would have probably prevented Jack from getting some of the seminal experiences he needed that formed his character, formed his nature. And he was having fun. Yeah, he was up late, but 50 bucks he split. 50 bucks for a night as a 10-year-old. That'll get you working. And, of course, that immigrant story. We love the immigrant story here in this country. And remember, he didn't call it a Catholic church. He called it an Italian church. And I know because I went to an Italian church, the Sicilian part of my family. It was not a Catholic church. And that's why I was smiling. And you are, too. Jack Marucci's story. What a classic American story. YouTube in his way. self Hot all the way into becoming America's premier bat maker. His story here on Our American Stories continues after these messages. stories and now the final portion of this remarkable American dreamer's stories on Jack Marucci who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball. Let's pick up where we last left off. On Marucci Sports' website there's video testimonies from MLB players including Albert Pujols and Andrew McCutcheon And even though their videos are supposed to be about baseball, how they honor the game and their Marucci bats, both of those guys started talking about their faith. Here's Pujols on hitting his 600th home run. First of all, I need to thank God for giving me the the opportunity and the ability to be able to do that. That's who I give all the glory and all the credit. And here's McCutcheon with just a ton of kids at the annual baseball camp he hosts in his hometown of Fort Meade, Florida. I'd like to thank all y'all for coming, all right? Anybody heard the Lord's Prayer? All right? Before every game, when I go out, I like to go out in the middle of center field, and I like to say a little prayer. Repeat after me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will Powerful. Be 
stuff and stuff that Jack's company keeps in the videos. Most of the media takes these uncool parts out, taking out of their stories what they say is the central force in their lives. It's important to who they are. It's important that people should hear that. That it don't be ashamed of it. I think people are coming more ashamed of it. Talk about it. So that's one of those things I think it's gotten slanted a little bit. So I think faith is, it's funny how when hard times come, people, they want faith, they want religion. You know, you should be, when good things, how about thanking that, you know, that, that side of it? Let's not, it's not always one side of it, but it's funny how people evolve back to that. Why is that? Well, there's something pulling you there. Faith is part of hope. And once you take hope away from people, it's not a good thing. You always, you know, when I talk to athletes, if they're injured, you always have that hope. Faith is the same lines. So faith gives people that hope, gives them comfort. We think that's very important to have that message because that's who they are. It's the right thing to do. And it's important to these people's lives. Paul says that, that, that is, he's strong with that. that that's, that's real now. That's not just saying it. He lives it. Coach Biden lived it. Coach Pound didn't cuss. He lived that life. And Jack doesn't cuss either. Even though this Italian Catholic comes from the perfect background for it. Believe it or not, I don't. I never smoked. I don't drink. And we grew up in a, you know, restaurant and I, and I have nothing against it, but I don't know. I just, I just never, never have it. I'm in an environment where cussing is very uh, <laughs> prominent. We had a coach one time. He came over. I'm not going to mention his name. I talked to him. He came in and goes, you know, I speak two different languages. He goes, I speak English and profanity. <laughs> and he did. I think profanity might have been his uh, dominant uh, language. But, um, uh, and I have not, again, there's, there's not, we're in an environment of it. But, uh, you know, uh, I don't think you have to do that. If you go to church on on a weekend, you should, it, it's a time to be thankful. <laughs> it's the only time where you really can sit down and, you know, we're so busy. And we try to say our prayers at night, but a lot of times, you know, we'll fall asleep or we're, we're exhausted or we, we do, we don't. But that's a time where you're, you're captured and just be thankful for what you have instead of going over all the negative stuff. But that's self-talk. That's a whole other topic and what we try to do and, you know, how, how the mind can overpower you. So, but that's where faith and religion can give you a little more clarity if, if you if you're invested in it i've seen people change because of that we have a player and his name's cecil collins cecil collins was probably the best running back we ever had here only played three games and three and a half games that's it and yet jack is insisting that he's still the best they've ever had you can look at the youtube stuff he had a little, he struggled as a young player. He got in trouble. Unjustified, he was in prison for about 18 years. 18 years, he just got out a couple years ago. I reconnected, been trying to help him with some things, invite him to the bowl game. If, if, if religion didn't change his life, then it hadn't changed anybody's. He doesn't cuss anymore. He, doesn't. he is a true testament. And he almost died in prison. He was eating, um, it was like chicken and rice. There was a bone that cut him. He was internally bleeding. And they weren't going to take him to the dog. He finally got there. The surgeon saved his life. He was 150 pounds. 
And this guy, his personality, he is a, unbelievable, he's a gem. He's got a family, he's, he's, he's become an electrician. Just a productive, this guy has a future. In just the way that Jack says, this guy has a future. You can hear how proud Jack is of him. And yet, that's not how a lot of mainstream culture would look at him. He's the best running back that LSU's ever had. Could have made tens of millions of dollars in the NFL. But now, he's an electrician. And you're saying that he's a gem and has a future? It says a lot about who Jack Marucci is. And integrity that other people can't help but to respond to. When we were together, Jack pulled out his phone and played for me a voicemail that someone left for him the other day. He didn't do it to brag. He was just so tickled by it. I'm so happy for you. and I don't know you. I'm proud of you. I love what you do and how you do it. love the story of your company. I wanted to let you know that John Brubrick has shared it with my entire Major League staff here in spring training. We're listening to Clint Hurdle, the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And there were only a few of us that knew the story going in, so for about 50 guys, it was the first time they heard. Basically, a dad made a bat for a boy that he loved, and it's turned into what it's turned into, um, because it was just about unconditional love, and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad, your servant, and then the way you've gone about it since then, so professionally. So if I can ever be of service to you, please let, let me know. Um, I will send you my contact information. Um, I send out a daily email of encouragement. Um, then I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker is a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So, you're all good by me. Let me know if I can be of service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, love to run into you. Uh, buy you dinner or something. Okay? Over and out, buddy. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That phone call also says a lot about Clint Hurdle. To be operating at the highest level of your profession as he is, and to make the time to call someone, someone you don't know, just to tell them how impressed you are by them and how they've lived their life. Think we could do that more in our lives? I know that I can. For Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And what a story. I think that may be my favorite right up there with Ralph Lauren and Bernie Marcus. And Our American Dreamer Stories can be found at ouramericannetwork.org. We've done a bunch. And my goodness, great work as always to Alex Cortez. Our great crew here goes all over this country to find these great stories And the redeeming virtue and feature of our stories is that we love to shine the light on the good. And unlike most media enterprises who shine light on the ugly and the train wreck, we love light and we love real hope and darkness. Well, turn to another channel if that's what you're looking for. And our American Dreamer series is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And Job Creators Network works hard to fight for public policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And by the way, the founder of Job Creators Network is a hero of mine, Bernie Marcus, who at 49 years old found himself out of work. He and two partners, Ken Langone and Arthur Blank, 
started a little company you all know now, and it's called Home Depot. And those three men built this great enterprise and then have spent their later years giving a lot of their money away and showing the virtue and generosity uh, that capitalism can bequeath. And I want to add also that you can get all of Our American Dreamer series stories over at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And so I want to leave this story playing the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates' message, his message that was on Jack Marucci's phone because it's worth hearing again. And don't we all wish that a message like this would be left on our phone by a complete stranger and that our life's work, what we do in our lives, our integrity and our character can leave this imprint and can make this kind of difference. Integrity and character, we talk about it a lot here on this show. Let's leave with Clint Hurdle. This is Our American Stories. Basically, Dad made a bat for a boy that he loved, and it's turned into what it's turned into um, because it was just about unconditional love, and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad, your servant, and then the way you've gone about it since then so professionally. So if I can ever be of service to you, please let let me know. Um, I will send you my contact information. Um, I send out a daily email of encouragement. Um, then I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker is a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So, you're all good by me. Let me know if I can be a service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, love to run into you. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. 